Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to African Family Business Research Conference. Um, We'll be kicking off session four, a panel discussion on packing, mastering the comeback by family businesses, one size does not fit all. My name is Nike Anani. I'll be moderating with Sissi Mutendi, who you'll be seeing shortly. Our panel members include Alan Barr from KPMG South Africa, Craig Sudding from KPMG South Africa, Tom McGuinness from KPMG UK, and Professor Elmarie Venter from Nelson Mandela Family from Nelson Mandela University Family Business Unit in South Africa also. So um Elmarie, can you please this is a follow-on conversation from um, the prior session, which we had KPMG present on mastering the comeback by family businesses. Can you just quickly summarize for us what were the key themes? Excellent. Thank you very much, Nikkei. And I also want to thank my colleagues for joining during this session. Uh, we had an excellent presentation in the previous session where Alan and Craig highlighted, um, you know, the fact that even though we looked at the impact of COVID, uh, pre-COVID, post-COVID um, globally, but also in the African context, there's definitely no one size fits all. And it would be very interesting also, Tom, to get your insights into that. But if, if I can just summarize some key points um, which was highlighted by Alan and Craig and that is that uh, it's important to take a long-term orientation you know it's not a ticking box exercise as Alan said and it all comes back to you know the DNA and the nature of family businesses that they um, in terms of performance outcomes and success you know they also regard um, your non-financial outcomes as important or even more important than the financial outcomes and in the report that Ellen and Cray also highlighted is the importance of social responsibility. You know, the families in the survey sacrificing dividends, um, but rather retain their employees, looking after their employees during this time. And that's why it all comes back to, you know, it's important for family businesses to build relationships, not only inside the business, but outside of the business. And um, that's why we actually saw um, on average that family businesses still survived and outperformed non-family businesses during this difficult um, time that have passed and and some of them even grow um, tremendously so uh, and then perhaps one last point is the importance of social capital Uh, Nika and Titi you also mentioned it this morning the importance of human capital and then what Alan and Craig highlighted is the importance of patient capital so there are inherently some characteristics of family businesses that can help them to survive you know, and even prosper during difficult economic times. So I think uh, it it, uh, sort of supported very nicely and linked on very nicely to your address this morning in terms of the unique nature of family businesses. And even if there's no one size fits all, I think we can all take valuable lessons um, sort of and, 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 you know, apply that to our own businesses. So thank you very much, Nikkei. Thank you so much, Almarie, for being able to bring that all together and into perspective to everyone who wasn't in this morning session and the previous session. So to kick off this session and this panel, I am going to put Tom on the spotlight. And uh, the first question is for you. The Mastering the Comeback Report provided great insight into the strategies being adopted by family businesses in dealing with the pandemic. What are the key global trends you're observing since conducting the survey in 2020? And what are the family businesses doing differently? Thank you. Um, I'm very happy to be put in the spotlight and give uh, Alan and Craig a a rest. Um, So it's a great question. Um, If I had to use one word to categorise what's happening globally to family business, it would be transformation. Um, Pretty much every single family business that I talk to is undergoing some kind of transformation. Um, Probably the most common transformation is that which has been prompted by technology, because I think we would all acknowledge 
acknowledge that throughout the pandemic, technology has surprised us by its capability to allow us to work remotely, for one thing. Um, But probably a key thing for family business is that many of them were um, surprised by how much um, poor data they had coming out of their systems at the start of the pandemic. And so a good example would be their inability to forecast cash or working capital accurately at a time when they absolutely needed to be able to manage their liquidity, you know, as their revenues fell. Um, So I think this was a really key learning point that many of them have now picked up on as we start to come out of the pandemic and they look at growth. So what I'm seeing is a lot of investment in technology and the transformation that that brings, Um, the importance of data, and maybe I can say a bit more about that later, but the importance of data as regards in particular their ESG strategy. That's probably the, the number one topic that I'm talking to families about. But I think the other transformational aspect that I'm seeing goes back to um, Professor Almarie's um, very good summary of the report when we talk about the kind of socio-economic factors which influence family business DNA. Um, and in particular, I'm hearing a lot of families talk about philanthropy. Um, philanthropy is really important to them um, and changing the way in which the donations which the company makes to the charitable foundation are then um, spent if you like. And here I'm seeing very much the influence of that next generation coming through who have social capital values and they want to invest in projects which have either a sustainable or environmental angle or indeed just a social social angle. And I think this is something that really touches on how people are feeling um, as we've lived through the pandemic. So those are probably the two big trends, technology transformation and this sense of um, social social change that's happening within family business. Excellent. Thank you, Tom. Um, Professor Elmery, just wanted to know, what are your thoughts on the results of the Mastering the Comeback survey? And from the research you and your team are performing, what key trends are you observing across the continent? You're on mute, Professor. Yeah. Um, please call me Elmery. I feel very old if you call me Professor. <laughs> I'll speak on this um, specific part of the report um, tomorrow. Um, but um, the main an idea that Alan Craig and I, uh, with a, with my colleagues at the Family Business Unit, was trying to do in the African Barometer is that for the first time we included uh, socio-emotional wealth and we also included um, entrepreneurial orientation and uh, to what extent that influenced uh, pre-COVID, post-COVID and performance outcomes. And um, I think it was excellent to include that. I think uh, we need a lot more research on this in the African continent or in the context. And um, there you can see the dimensions of socio-emotional wealth that we tested. And Ellen, you can help me, but uh, the influence of socio-emotional wealth was very strong uh, amongst all of the nine countries that we included in the study. And then also certain dimensions of EO, entrepreneurial orientation, was very strong, especially the whole aspect of innovativeness. And uh, sorry, I just want to go back. Innovativeness, uh, proactiveness, not so much competitive aggression, and autonomy, but uh, definitely in terms of moderated uh, risk-taking, definitely innovativeness and proactiveness. And um, that also um, encouraged me uh, from an African context point of view is that uh, the family businesses are very innovative. um, And I think that also helped them to survive. Um, And I think if we compare it with global research, it's uh, very similar to what we find in your smaller to medium-sized family businesses, it's not so much radical innovation, but it's like Tom mentioned, you know, it's um, it's changing processes, um, using technology to, to change processes, to adjust products, um, uh, very innovative in terms of your marketing innovation. So uh, it's not so much um, a radical innovation, but it's more like exploiting um, current strength and, um, you know, to take something forwards. Then something that was very important to us to also investigate is the whole aspect of heterogeneity. So just to go back, we wanted to know if there are any differences in African countries 
with regard to entrepreneurial orientation, but also with regard to EO. So I'm not going to go into detail, but I think um, those of you that do research in on family businesses is the whole aspect of heterogeneity has become extremely important. So um, as Alan and Craig mentioned in the previous session, we cannot lump all family businesses together and the same goes for African family businesses. So there are differences with, with regard to industry, size, uh, many other things when it comes to entrepreneurial orientation and also when it comes to socio-emotional wealth. And then I want to just emphasize that um, there's the quote from the report is 49% of the respondents for them emotional considerations are as important as economic considerations. And coming back to what Craig said in the in the previous session is that we need to look at the multidimensional performance or nature of performance outcomes and success when we look at African family businesses. So I think uh, a, a, a gap um, and still there's very limited research on how um, African family businesses perform in terms of the different aspects that we investigated. So I think our sample was still too limited and um, I think we should all join hands. So it has become very clear that we need to look at the influence of socio-emotional wealth. We need to look at entrepreneurial orientation and we need to exploit, you know, um, as, as Tom said, um, things that have changed the transformation that have taken place, we need to use that as family business owners to actually take us forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elmarie. Has any of our panelists have anything to add on what Elmarie's highlighted on? Can I can I just add something? Because I think what Al, I, I won't call you professor. Um, I, what Elmarie has said is. Uh, so important. And it, it got me thinking about the fact that what I'm hearing from family businesses as well is, and this is connected to this socio-emotional uh, factor, really, um, is that they feel that their employees are looking for a different kind of leadership from them and that that leadership is very much purpose driven. So it's not just about, you know, making cash or profits or some of these other usual indicators. It's about making sure that the stakeholders, including the employees, feel that they have been listened to and that the business is heading in a direction where it has a clear purpose. And I think this is a feature of the pandemic, you know, because many of us on an individual level have reflected on what's our purpose? What do we want to do with our lives? And I think it's exactly the same how this plays into family business. And just to give you one sort of really concrete example of what I'm seeing in the UK, um, but I think this is a global trend also, you know, there has been a huge increase in mental health issues for people throughout the pandemic. And what I see with family businesses is they are ahead of the game in terms of gripping this for their employees. And many of them have invested in better employee programs to support their employees who are having mental health issues as a result of the stresses of the pandemic. And I think this plays very much to that socio-economic aspect of family business. It also increases employee loyalty, for one thing. Um, so I think, to, to Al-Marie's point also, um, you know, that that is quite an innovative thing to do for family business. So this idea that somehow family businesses are not innovative is, is completely false. And so I would agree with with what Almarie was saying, you know, they are doing things which are creating a new kind of market for family business and really starting to look forward. Thank you. For maybe that. just to add to what Tom, maybe just to add what Thomas said, I think sometimes it's the smaller things that the family businesses are doing, the things that are that are more pertinent and actually listening to the employees, but at the same time getting the feedback and not only taking the lead in terms of that innovation, right? It's actually getting everyone as one family to drive it forward and you're seeing that across the African content. You know, it's the smaller things that actually make a bigger difference as opposed to this massive, um, innovative, new idea or whatever. It's, it's the smaller aspects that make that, that drive, yeah. Sorry, I may as well add my point there as well. But I think how that happens as well is, is because... I mean, all of this, how does a family differentiate itself from a normal business, a non-family business, in the sense that especially if it's a large, larger family and you've got multiple family members throughout, working throughout the business, they are having these discussions on the ground with the employees as well. And it just allows for that communication between 
non-family employee and family employee. And then when the family are having their dinner discussions, Sunday lunch discussions, whatever it is, these factors are being picked up quicker. And that adds to that, the benefit of a family business versus a non-family business and that you have these, um, you have people throughout the business that can have that immediate feedback as opposed to going through these um, set systems that have to. Thank you everyone for that. Um, I'm going to start with Tom for this question. The Mastering the Comeback report identified that business transformation was on the, on the key, one of the key strategies adopted by family businesses. Do you have any examples of how family businesses that you've, you've been working with are transforming their businesses or family businesses that you've been seeing in the market in the U.S.? UK have been transforming their business. And I think also to just spread that question to the panelists from the continent to just add their observations as well. Sure, happy to. Um, I think connected with the transformation, and I gave some examples earlier about the importance of technology and the data that the system provides um, needs to be much better in order that the business can make strategic decisions based on reliable data. That, that, that is definitely something that is coming through. But connected with that all also is how the data and the systems can allow the business to demonstrate that it's meeting its obligations under its ESG strategy, particularly around decarbonisation. Um, and just to give you um, a concrete example, um, I look after a family business in the UK, which is about 150 years old. Um, it's now into its fifth generation. It's in the construction sector. And obviously in the construction sector, having a clear ESG strategy is very important, you know, not just health and safety, but building using environmental materials, etc. And they were bidding for a very large inner city regeneration project in the hundreds of millions sterling, and they lost the bid to a competitor. And when they went back to the, um, the local government who was procuring the project and said, can you give us some feedback as to why we, we lost it? They said, because we didn't believe that your ESG strategy was properly embedded in the operating model of your business. So that was a massive shock for my client. And what it said to the board was that we can no longer treat ESG as a kind of box ticking exercise. It's actually become a commercial competitive differentiator. And so what I would say is I'm starting to see this really beginning to take shape. So, you know, customers will make decisions about which family businesses they want to do business with based on their ESG strategy. And equally, um, the other area that I'm seeing is many family businesses reviewing their supply chain to say, are we comfortable that the um, businesses which provide providers with our materials are actually ESG compliant themselves. So I do think, you know, um, I I do think this whole area is beginning to become much more real. And obviously, the the, the pictures that we've all seen on the television over the last, you know, six or eight weeks with whether it's the fires in Greece or the floods in Germany, um, you know, has really brought climate change right up the agenda. And so family businesses, because it plays to the heart of their value, values, I think, are in a really strong position to kind of lead the charge on the change that's required. And maybe just to add to what Thomas said, maybe not on the ESG side, but just how family businesses are transforming. Some of the examples that we've seen is, is not limiting yourself to your current country in terms of from a market point of view and actually looking cross-border. Uh, that's that, and despite COVID, uh, and I think in Africa, what we're seeing with the Africa Free Trade Agreement, countries, you know, businesses are looking how to take advantage of that within the rules of the regulations and saying, okay, how do we start exploring new markets? But bearing in mind, there's some there's some challenges there as well and making sure the regulatory aspects, but at the same time, also making sure that they are focusing on the profitable aspects of their business. I think too many had a whole host of different products that they were servicing and supplying, but now with the data, as Tom correctly said, is saying, okay, well, this is where we're actually making the money. And that's what we're going to focus on. So a far greater focus in terms of what they can supply um, and including looking at taking the current facilities, specifically in the manufacturing space and saying, okay, well, now we can start making gowns for the medical uh, fraternity because there's an opportunity there and that will be long-term. It's not 
you know, just making masks, et cetera, but it's actually looking at those long-term flows and investing in it. And we've got a couple of clients that are, that are starting to do that. So a couple of real tangible looking cross-border, looking at new markets and, and focusing on what is profitable and really understanding their business far, far better. And then I know it's going to be brief on this one. In doing, looking to different markets and different um, yeah, in looking to different markets and maybe looking to partner up, it's quite interesting that they're looking to partner up with other family businesses that may have similar shared, a shared um, purpose or, or values um, because they see the power of themselves as a family business and sometimes it's 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 dangerous to go into a new market without having someone who knows that market or already plays in that market. And if I go back to the report as well, the reason why, or well, one of the reasons why family businesses are able to make these decisions is during the pandemic, they took that gift of time. They didn't take, I mean, a lot of people did panic, but they actually took that gift of time to think these through in terms of long-term versus just the short-term um, fix. What is the long-term opportunity as well? Because unfortunately, the reality is some businesses were struggling and there were opportunities as well to go into different markets um, at a better price. But at the same time, they wouldn't have just gone in um, by themselves. They would have looked to a business or a family that had shared values or a shared purpose similar to this. Yes, um, Tom, I see you have a raised hand. Yeah, sorry. Can I, can I just build on on what Alan and Craig have said, but, but from a different angle, I was just keen to share this um, story as well. Um, I think the point around diversification is a great point. Um, You know, many family businesses, if they were in a sector which was really exposed during the pandemic, so if they were in hospitality, for example, um, have realised that that they need to diversify um, because there will inevitably be another crisis at some point. And in order to protect the family wealth, if you like, um, you know, they need to think about whether it's other markets or different customers. And so their ability to diversify is really important. And, you know, I think Craig made the point earlier as well that, um, you know, sometimes there is a myth about family business that says, you know, they're cautious and they're slow moving. It's not true. You know, they're incredibly agile because, you know, the decision making tree is quite tight. So if they want to change, they can make decisions to change quickly. But but the particular point I also wanted to make was that as the families get bigger, so as each generation starts to take over, then the business basically has to provide for that family. And I've certainly seen with one of my families in particular where the business is no longer capable of effectively funding the lives of the extended family. And so they need to move into a market where the margin and the profit is larger so that as the fifth generation comes into the family, um, the, the business is still able to provide the lifestyle and the funding that the extended family needs. And I think that's quite an interesting trend that's coming through as we see more succession starting to take place within family businesses. So, so it's not just protecting the family wealth, but it's actually making sure that um, the operating or trading entity that effectively funds the family is capable of funding that wider family base. So, so I wanted to just make that particular point. Thank you, Tom. And Almarie? Yes, um, I, I want to support what Tom has said. And um, I always like to come up with a small for the small and medium sized businesses because we tend to think, you know, fourth generation, fifth generation, but we all need to come back and, and remember that most family businesses in Africa is still in the second generation, third generation. You have some uh, third, fourth generation, but uh, we have now seen it in Welcome and Tony's study, you know, that that's still younger uh, family businesses and we have to keep that in mind. But I want to support what Tom has said in two things. And that brings us back to this whole issue of a family business versus a business family. You know, that it's important to grow the wealth of the the family quicker than the numbers in the family. And uh, I think that COVID has also emphasized that and, and stretched that and then very important other point that um, Tom made, and I think Alan also referred to that, is that um, I think there was in many of the clients that I knew or that I work with, there was almost sometimes a competition or um, yeah, competitive nature between the older and the, the younger generation. And I think COVID um, has almost forced succession to be more effective, to come quicker. Um, so I found that in some of the families, you know, sort of the animosity 
fell away and it was like a, a team effort where the older generation had to look at the younger generation and vice versa and they could implement or they could actually move succession earlier because of, of COVID and, and the need to be more effective. So that's just two of the trends that I picked up um, to support what Tom has said. Thank you, Almarie. And Alan, and then Tom again. Yeah, I agree, Almarie. I think, I think COVID exposed the vulnerability of everyone and therefore it enabled effective communication. What we see, even in some of the clients I'm dealing with, you know, second generation are, are strongly looking at the wealth creation vehicles and and where is that wealth going to be placed and i think especially in africa with a number of the the challenges we experience in different countries and how volatile it is uh, african family businesses are saying you know where are we going to make sure do we have we got a plan to diversify our wealth and our wealth creation and i think that's when you're seeing far more dialogue between um family members you know, on that side. But at the same time, the, the next generation is saying, yes, new opportunities for us to move into in terms of what is the future industries and having those discussions um, with the senior generations and their cousins and their siblings, et cetera, and saying, you know, in order for us to move forward, we need to start dabbling, if I can call it like that, and, and putting some money in, and to see if it works and then to, to grow. So but the big thing I wanted to highlight as well is the access to funding which is a challenge across Africa and and in order to sustain not only the business but in order to invest and grow is is looking who to partner with and I think Craig you mentioned it is is not only partnering with other family business which what we've seen is the preferable route because they understand this aspect and there's a longer term view but there's also the access of private equity and there's a lot of private equity funding available um, whereas, unfortunately, the traditional banking is, 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 is nervous, right? They're nervous. They're nervous about. So looking at avenues and options of raising finance is, is quite important with uh, the African family businesses at the moment. Ellen, can I just, I, I know, Tom, your hand is up. I just want to mention what Nikkei said this morning uh, on your point. She made a very good point that I'm going to steal. And she said, it's not only important to look at the future of the business, but the business of the future. And I think it's the point that you made. Sorry. Thank you, Tom. That's an, that's an excellent quote. I might steal it myself, actually, for a, for a future event. Um, so, um, no, that's excellent. Um, so, so the point I, I just wanted to make, building really on, on Al Marie's point, which I thought was a great point, um, you know this this intergenerational um, meeting of minds, which is happening, where there's what I think I agree there's less tension, and I think what's happened is that senior generation have been reminded of their own mortality as a result of COVID, and it has accelerated the succession discussions. And I actually think that family businesses are in a unique position now to drive change and growth because the senior generation have kind of re-engaged with the business. And because they have lived through crisis before, we talk about them having this you know, historical memory. So they bring a sense of calm to the situation. You know, we've seen things before. This is how we dealt with them before. And if you combine that with that new generation who are much more comfortable with technology, much more comfortable with data, you actually get a great combination of team, which allows them to build something different for the future. So so I do think that that generational play that is happening uh, within family business puts them in a really strong position for the future. And if I can Thank just you. build on that, just build on that, and bring in the bring back the family wealth for the future as well. That's where your family office practice come into play to bring bring it all together. Because not everyone's going to want to be in the business, and sometimes the family business doesn't have space for everyone in the family. And to also provide that funding mechanism for those family members who don't want to be in the business but have an idea that is for the future. And to allow for that. So that's where the role of the family office, I believe, is also important. And coming back to that intergenerational communication and realizing the mortality that is is there, it's also opening up transparency in terms of what is the family wealth. Because a lot of the current generation don't haven't told the next generation. And then all of a sudden something happens and now they're lumped with this massive wealth, which is great, but they don't know what to do with it. Um, and that's the worst worst position you can put anyone in. Incredible. Um, my next question, I'll start with you, Alan. 
Um, governance continues to be a key agenda for family businesses. And what would you say are the key aspects of governance that you're noticing amongst family businesses in Africa? Thanks, Nick. I think there's two aspects to that governance one. One is the family governance. Um, obviously, the rules of the game of how the family interacts with the business and obviously the foundations is the purpose and the values, right? So that that is key. But what we're seeing now is the, the corporate governance as well becoming so important. And I think too many next generation family members want to become directors of a company, but they actually don't understand what does that mean in terms of the role. You know, the, the liability that goes with it is so fundamental. And how are the board being responsible in preparing the next generation to step into their role? But not only that, I think the importance of uh, diversity, the importance of independent directors on the boards, and we're seeing more and more African family business starting to professionalize their boards and seeing how important they are in terms of taking and forward, including getting advisors onto these boards. So I just think there's more education required in terms of how to be effective as a board um, and and taking that responsibility on a not, once again, I want to use that term, not using it as a tick box. The meetings are not just there for the sake of having a meeting and making sure the meetings are there, adding value. Um, so I think a lot more in training and preparation and selection of those family members stepping in. You know, I think we've seen historically families uh, electing members to represent their branch when they go and and um, sit on the board. But the director is responsible for the company. They're not there responsible for their branch or a shareholder. And I think when people start and understanding which hat you're wearing in which meeting, and, um, you know, we've all heard that, you know, am I management, am I director, or am I shareholder or beneficiary? And understanding those roles and getting far more comfortable and educated in doing it, because if not, they will damage the business and that will impact the family. And both are important. And we're seeing more and more the alignment between the family governance aspect as well as the board governance and making sure that the rules of the game and the boundaries are clearly defined and how they intersect, but where the boundaries are, so to manage that aspect. And that's that's some of the governance aspects that, that we're seeing at the moment. Ellen, if I can support your point, um, I think it's extremely important what you just said, um, because um, even with the, with the medium-sized businesses, the smaller businesses, I find, I don't know about you guys um, and ladies, but I sometimes have a huge challenge convincing my clients to make use of outside uh, people on the boards. And even if it's an advisory board or even if it's a trustee, I'm now currently working with family where it probably took me a year to convince them to bring in two competent outsiders. And I, I think it's so important what you just said is I think many families do not understand their role. They they can't make a distinction between whether they're a shareholder, whether they're working in the business, whether they're board member. They actually don't understand the roles. And it may be obvious to us because we work in um, governance, so to speak, and we know we know what should be done. But I think the, the importance of bringing, uh, Craig also mentioned that bringing in an outside advisor or just somebody that can bring in a different perspective. Um, although I find it sometimes very challenging, you know, they once they 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 trust you, it becomes a little bit easier to convince them. But I find it's very hard for them to bring in competent outsiders to actually help them look after the business interests. You know, they're very emotionally involved in what's happening. So uh, I just want to support that point. I think it's a very important point you make. So maybe just to add, I think you, what your point is there is they need to understand they need to get a different perspective. The world is changing so quickly at the moment that a family that has got one lens of what is taking place, they're going to miss the opportunity. So it's not only, only about the risk, but it's about missing potential opportunities that are coming along and and it's been proven. I mean, there's a report that's just been released uh, by a company called Serdar that companies in Africa that have got 
women on the board and diversity in terms of um, independence, et cetera, financial performance is outperforming those that do not significantly. So there's significant value. And, you know, some families have been very innovative in how they've looked at remunerating these board members. I mean, for instance, one client of ours is they don't pay the independent board members because they want them to be independent. They tell, her, they tell them which charity would you like your, a donation to go to? So the board members are truly independent. They don't get paid a cent, but what they earn gets donated to a charity of their choice. So the value that independence, the right independence, in, and, and, and non-family members can add certainly surpasses the cost in what we're seeing and, and, and evidence, um, you know, information is proving it. So it's, you know, and especially for the smaller and medium-sized businesses, I would actually say it's even more important there than maybe some of the larger corporates because it will evolve. But the smaller businesses, they need to get those that aspect. In. If, if I can build on that point, I think it's a great point, Alan. Um, the, the whole governance discussion, um, you know, outside Africa, across the globe, is very high up people's radar. Partly, I think, because many family businesses, regardless of their size, recognised that they were caught off guard by what happened in the crisis. And so one way of having better risk management is to have better governance. And so putting in place the right kind of governance structures is really important, both at that corporate level and um, and at the family level. Um, one area in particular that I'm seeing is, you know, as they invest in technology to transform the business, then better governance around cybersecurity, for example, is coming much higher up the radar because, you know, having a breach of data, um, you know, as you go forward and you're trying to grow could be disastrous. Um, and the other area, you know, I'm not sure if you have this in Africa, I'd be interested to know, but, you know, in many, in many countries, uh, the UK, for example, um, the larger family businesses are now required to publish their tax strategy on their website. And, you know, part of the reason for that is that the tax authorities, you know, want to want to see businesses that are being compliant and that are not doing any tax planning, which might be regarded as evasion, for example. And what I've seen with family businesses is they are extremely mindful that their approach to tax planning could damage their brand, you know, that of the family, if they were seen to be engaging in something that was not regarded as completely compliant. And I know that earlier, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, families were, were willing to forgo their dividends so that their employees could stay in employment, which, which I think is a great point. And um, also in the UK, you know, if, if a family business took advantage of government support, uh, which came in the form of subsidising their employees, then they didn't also take a dividend because they felt that, you know, good governance would say, you know, you shouldn't also pay the family as well as take government support. It should be one thing. And I think it's quite interesting that family businesses led the way in being good corporate citizens when it came to these kinds of uh, additional support. So I, I think just to build on on the point that um, Al-Marie and, and Alan was making around governance. Thank you so much. Um, Al-Marie, I see your hand is raised. Yeah, can I just, um, that's a very good point, um, Tom. I can just perhaps share with you that I have a colleague who's in financial management at Stellenbosch University. And they are are looking specifically at responsible investments. And um, what is very hard in South Africa is to actually know, um, I don't know, perhaps the other two ladies can tell us, um, and Ellen and Craig, it's very hard to know exactly who are listed family companies and who not. So in, in some cases, you can look at the surname and you can look at the general report. But compared to Europe and to the U.S., we're very far behind in terms of knowing exactly. But that is becoming a huge issue um, overall in South Africa is uh, responsible investments. And um, it comes back to that whole issue of social-emotional wealth. 
because the reputation is one of the five key um, factors that influence families' decisions because often their name is attached to the business and vice versa. And uh, we find exactly the same, perhaps. Alan and Craig can uh, comment on that from a more technical point of view, but I think it's it's definitely becoming a huge issue uh, in South Africa as well. Then you want me to take this one? Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of identifying family businesses, I think that's something that, I mean, aligns with the family wants to remain private. So their business, they don't want to be associated with it. And also, I mean, it's a form of natural governance, that whole reputation and legacy aspect of a family business. I mean, that's natural governance in the purest form, in my view, in the sense that you don't want um, your name to be tarnished with your business at the same time. So coming back to it, Elmarie, I mean, sure, um, I spent a lot of time trying to identify the family businesses in South Africa, let alone anywhere else. And it's 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 an incredibly difficult um, um, piece of data to try and find a data set to try and find. I mean, even working with the research houses, it's quite difficult because at the end of the day, you're still relying on someone telling you that they have family business. Um, because as we said, there's no one set of criteria at the end of the day. So that's, I'm going to park that one there. I think it's incredibly difficult unless family businesses feel more secure to start um, sharing that kind of information. But I think that's very difficult. Um, in terms of responsible investing, or maybe I'm going to come back to Tom's question around reporting tax strategies. I mean, in particular in South Africa, I mean, I find at least our clients are quite responsible in their tax affairs to start off with. Um, they will always say they're happy to pay the right amount of tax, but there will be some planning done, but it's not to not pay tax, it's to pay the right amount of tax at the end of the day. And again, it comes back to this whole reputation thing because a lot of the time the family name is linked in some manner or form to the business and vice versa, and they don't want to be um, caught up in that front because, yeah. And also, um, which I'll maybe touch on more, is the factor of the um, government subsidies and incentives, these COVID-related incentives that are being provided, is how is the government going to pay that back at the end of the day? They've got to find that funding from somewhere. And who the prime people for that is your high net worth families and individuals in your country. So that discussion has been, and I think it's gone now that it won't come to the fore in terms of a, a wealth tax. But what's happening is, your wealthy are now identified because there's a lot more data in terms of the sharing of information globally of tax information and financial information that now revenue authorities know who to now go and just put a magnifying glass over. So again, that comes back to being a responsible citizen linked to the family business. Um, and I think that in its own form is creating um, responsible planning from a tax perspective. Marie, once again. Yeah, um, um, I want to um, also um, latch on to what Grace said. Um, I can't pr- pronounce the surname of the first author, but Alfredo de Masses and four of his colleagues um, last year have done a huge research project uh, where they also include very many countries. And um, exactly what you're referring to, I think what is a huge challenge in Africa is the stability of the governments. And and government in general, because um, they have found very, very clearly that uh, it was one of the three things, if I can remember correctly, I'll share the, the, the article with all of you. But they have found very distinctly that if um, there's a stable um, political environment, that the family businesses are definitely um, performing much better than in countries where there's an instability. And I think that is perhaps one of the biggest challenges. Um, I know it's also a global issue, but it's a huge issue, I think, in Africa, that there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of instability in terms of governments. And, um, yeah, it's something that's often outside of the control of the family business. And as Alan said, they, they're starting to get creative around governments and around, but, but it's, still, it's still hard. Um, and I find especially the smaller, medium-sized ones, you know, it's hard for them to to um, comply and to really be uh, effective if you sit with corruption, uh, instability in government. So I think it's something, unfortunately, that we have to 
um, you know, rectifying an African context, because I think that's killing many smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses. Thank you. My next question um, and the last question for this panel uh, goes to Cree. Um, if we come back to the global report, it highlighted the large difference in strategies between the different regions. One of those differences were the low number of jobs lost in Europe of 4% versus the 20% across Africa and the Middle East. What are the reasons for this difference? Thanks, um, Yeah, so I think there's a few different reasons on it. Um, and I think we may have touched on it. Omri, you've just touched on it. Maybe the stability of the government could be one of them. And I think that kind of ties into the, the relief packages in, in my mind, that one of the aspects is the relief packages that were made available. I mean, if you look across Europe, I mean, significant relief packages were provided to, to help companies sustain their employees, at least sustain their salaries for a um, portion of time where in Africa and South Africa, at least similar support, but not to the, the extent. And I think we just saw companies could not um, sustain keeping employees um uh, on board. But having said that, I think we've just got to remember that that's one aspect of it. There's also the labor law aspect of it where um, in South Africa, maybe it's just easier to let someone go than to try and keep them um, in a business that's really struggling um, from a liquidity perspective. But we've also just got to bring back the family values um, and where that 20% is very difficult for families to actually let staff go and the focus being, as we said, not paying dividends, rather keeping the money for salaries and, and what, what may it be. But, I mean, if we go back to the reports, the founders of a lot of Colombian families that came through the report was that they focus on the continuity of their business actually as a duty. Um, the family may have its values, but it, they feel it's a duty to ensure that the families who depend on the business could continue to also thrive. So they see themselves as a family business, but they're supporting other families. And so they reinforced the existing employee policy. They paid salaries on time and provided business bonuses to the pension workers, all at the expense of the dividends up to the family. So that's an example that doesn't quite align with the 20% versus 4%. But what I'm trying to get across the line here is that family businesses, it was a tough decision to make. And Alan, I think, mentioned it's on the previous session that they tried their utmost to get the salaries paid. And at the end of the day, if a business is not going to continue, you, you, you actually can't pay the salaries. So we're made available. Um, and I think that 20% could have been a lot higher had family businesses not taken the hard decision not to pay dividends and rather keep the, the salaries. So I think that's for me is, is one of the reasons Um and it's an unfortunate reality of an emerging economy versus a developed economy as well, in the sense that you're not going to have governments where also the corruption may come into, I can't comment too much on that, but um, the money wasn't going to the right places either as well. But from that perspective, I think that's another factor that came into it. Tom, I think you've got your hand up there. Yeah, just to build on that, Craig, and that's, that's really interesting for me, for me to hear that. And the point you make about you know, emerging economy versus developed economy, I think it's a really good one. Um, it, it kind of resonates with the point I was going to make, which is, you know, listening to what Elmer said earlier, you know, there are many businesses in Europe which are now fourth and fifth generation. Um, in South Africa, you know, it's it's more like second generation. I think when you have more generations, um, you build up a, an employee loyalty um, that attaches itself to the family and the brand. So I think, you know, the European businesses were fortunate that that, that was already in place. Um, I think the level of government support um, was typically, you know, very good. You know, in the UK, for example, you know, not only did um, the government subsidise employee wages, but at one point they were allowing every family business to defer all of their taxes for at least four months um you know to, to to provide cash flow and i think when you have that kind of uh level of government support and also kind of more regulation in place because it, it's a more mature economy 
Um, I, I think that goes some way to explain the difference between those numbers, you know. Yeah, Tom, and maybe if I can just also talk to it. I mean, you're probably a better place than me, but I understand the European Union has recently announced a 670 billion recovery and resilience plan. So you've got family business operating in an economy that understands a long-term view as well. So what they've done here is they've got the short term, as you've spoken about, but now there's this now next fixtures, 670 billion um, euros that are now going to be available over the next six years to ensure that there's a recovery in place as well. So that's a massive difference. We're in Africa. I mean, I don't think there's anything left in the coffers, if I may say it that way. Um, everyone's now scrambling to try and find where we can pay back where all that funding came from. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Craig. You know, the... the the union, the European Union, has provided these massive, you know, recovery packages, which many family businesses will take advantage of. You know, I think also, you know, um, one of my family businesses, that you know, the chairman of that family business was invited by the government to uh, chair a commission looking at better corporate governance for large private companies, and that consultation was published last year which again demonstrates that the government is interested in, you know, better governance in this sector, greater regulation that comes with it, you know, greater certainty around the future and the ability to manage risks. So, so I guess it's maybe something which, you know, the South African family businesses can try to aspire to over a period of time, but, but it is very difficult when, for example, the you know the, the treasury of the government is short of funds because clearly you have to find a way to balance the books, you know. Okay, so I think family businesses in South Africa need to quite scared to put themselves out there in terms of lobbying government or working with government. However, having said that, during the pandemic, at least one of the family businesses I work with, they were quite strong in on one of the um, one of the um, groups that got together to lobby governments to not lock down liquor industry for the periods that they did and and they were actually the spokespersons for 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 that group as well so and they saw the benefit out of it i had a call with them earlier today and they said said yes long hours long meetings but the contact he's made during that and the sharing of information between himself as a family business and other private companies in south africa has been um there's another value that's come through the whole pandemic and opportunity for for them as a family business as well Thank you so much. This has been such an insightful um, panel discussion, so much back and forth and um, richness and also depth as well to variety of different sub-themes as to how family businesses have fared throughout the pandemic. Um, invite all the participants that joined us this evening. Thank you so much for joining in. We'll be resuming tomorrow, day two, at 10 a.m. Central African time. Sorry, 11 a.m. Central African time. So see you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you very much, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice evening. Thank you.